This is Asked and Answered. Questions. With Tom Opferman and Steelers Digest editor Bob Labriola. Before we get into any other questions today, Labs, uh, I know you had a few words you wanted to say about the tragic passing of quarterback Dwayne Haskins, so I'll just throw it over to you and you can start with that. Yeah, uh, you know, an incredibly tragic and sad event. Um, you know, the the untimely death of Dwayne Haskins. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and claim to have known him personally or anything, but, you know, by all accounts, um, he was extremely respected and liked by his teammates uh, here with the Steelers. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of people who knew him and played with him at Ohio State reaching out, um, you know, with condolences and, and messages about him. Uh, what I can say is that Dwayne Haskins was a regular um, participant, even though the off-season program doesn't officially kick off here until, you know, another week or right. so. Uh, he was in the uh, Southside facility daily working with quarterbacks coach Mike Sullivan, you know, um, whatever – you know, they were doing in those offices, meetings, um, watching video, you know, those kind of things. And he was also participating uh, regularly in the indoor facility, uh, you know, just doing whatever he could to prepare himself for, you know, what was to come. And, um, you know, it's just incredibly sad uh, to when a guy who really seems to have um, – figured it out and gotten comfortable with himself and, and, you know, his, his, the, the, the arc of his career and what he wanted to do with the rest of it. And, you know, all of those things, in addition to being the kind of uh, person he was uh, in the community with his family. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for Dwayne Haskins, the efforts that he uh, was making and, you know, continued to make, and um, it's just an incredibly sad, tragic situation. Couldn't have said it better myself. Dwayne Haskins, rest in peace. Our first question today comes from Paul Kudrav from Harrisonburg, Virginia. Bruce Arians is no longer the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Todd Bowles, a minority coach, was named head coach. I expected the Rooney rule to require at least two minority candidates be interviewed. How did Tampa Bay bypass the rule? Uh, actually, Tampa Bay did not bypass the rule when they hired Todd Bowles to replace Bruce Arians because a provision within the rule waives the requirement for interviewing at least two minority candidates if the search slash hire happens after March 1st. Now, the reason that there is that provision in the rule is that by March 1st, you know, most of the top or realistic candidates will be under contract, and then after March 1st, teams are not required to grant permission to other teams to mm -hmm. interview their own coaches who are under contract. And so, you know, usually um, when, when that kind of a move is made, especially at that level, a head coaching level, a coordinator level, after March 1st, you know, something has happened. Right. Um, it's something sometimes health-related. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so... That's why the provision is within uh, the provision is in the Rooney Rule regarding the March first date, and so in essence, 
Tampa Bay did not uh, circumvent the rule. Daniel Mazenko from Latitz, Pennsylvania. Can a player under contract be put on the practice squad? If so, how are they paid for the time on the practice squad? I'm wondering if this is an option for Steph Tuitt if he returns to the team and is out of shape physically or mentally. Um, okay, the the general process for moving a player from the 53-man roster to the practice squad, and there's only a practice squad in existence at the time of the NFL calendar after the team cuts from 90 to 53 players. Um, now, there is this one exception that has come up recently in this process based on the COVID uh, situation where teams have been allowed to move players back and forth from the practice squad uh, to the active roster right around mm-hmm. a game without having them have to pass through waivers to make that process easier because of the COVID reserve list and the testing and right. you know all of that kind of stuff. Now, I don't know if that's going to continue into the 2022 season, but it was a part of the 2020 and 2021 seasons. So, okay, so with that one exception, the process is for a guy to move from the active roster to the practice squad, he has to be waived first and clear waivers, which is 24 hours, and then he can be added to the practice squad. Now, when a player is cut, released, waived, any of those uh, verbs, his existing contract is terminated. And then when he goes on the practice squad, they have to sign him to a practice squad contract. So that's how he's paid. And it would not, you know, um, with regard to Stefan Tuitt, <laughs> if he shows up for the offseason program or reports to training camp, you know, or any of those times, and um, he is, to use Daniel's words, out of shape physically or mentally, uh, the Steelers' only recourse is to put him on the physically unable to perform list, um, and players aren't paid at that time anyway because their contracts, you know, only pay them uh, for game checks. So you know, there's really, um, it really doesn't apply until after the 53 man roster is set. Uh, even though he missed all of last season and there's question marks around his health and his mental state, I, I don't imagine Steph Tewitt would last too long on the waiver wire if it did come to that, even even at this current state of his career. Yeah, I mean, you know, and the only thing is, I mean, um, and we don't, and I don't know this. I'll just speak for myself. I have no way of knowing um, what Stephon Tewitt's uh, uh, desire is, you know, to continue uh, as a professional football player. So, um, you know, once he figures that out, or maybe he already has, uh, and communicates it to the Steelers, and you know, then we can see uh, how this is going to pre- progress a little bit. But right now, you know, so much of it is unknown. Ken Gleason from Springboro, Ohio, asks: I was wondering if you had any news about how things turned out for David DeCastro. Did he have his surgery? Did he play anywhere last year? Uh, as far as I can tell you, Ken, uh, David DeCastro is out of football. Uh, he did not play for any NFL team last season. And because of that, uh, his health status is not subject to any disclosure rules. In fact, you know, his health status is now protected uh, the way every, normal people right. is through HIPAA. So uh, whether he had surgery on his ankle, it was never made public. The only way it could be made public is if DeCastro decides to go public with the information himself. Because if a doctor, a surgeon, a nurse, 
uh, anyone associated uh, working in the healthcare industry would make any of that public, that would be a violation of HIPAA regulations and would not be a good thing for those medical professionals. So I don't know. He is out of football. I do know that. And I think that, you know, the longer this goes makes it clear to me yeah. anyway, without being told anything that he is retired. You don't have to name any specific names. I, I don't know if you could, but do you kind of get a feeling or remember a retirement like this in the past where it's so quiet? Like it just, it's kind of like an Irish goodbye of a retirement where he just, he doesn't say anything formally. He just stops showing up. Um, my recollection is Larry Brown. Okay. Uh, did, did did something similar. I mean, he just kind of faded away. Um, and, you know, he was a four Super Bowl ring guy right. from the 70s. And so there was always a lot of attention, you know, associated with any of those players. But, um, yeah, he just, I mean, he was, he had had enough um, and just kind of, you know, faded away. And Larry Brown is now in the Steelers Hall of Honor, uh, came back and participated in that. And, um, you know, very successful businessman and you know, all of those good things. But he was just never a a guy who liked a lot of spotlight on him while he was a football player. Maybe Dave is cut from the same cloth there. Corey Lilberg from Mill Spring, North Carolina. Regarding the new overtime rule, I feel as though NFL owners and coaches keep attacking the result instead of the problem. Do you think it's worth considering the change of such an old tradition, tradition such as the coin toss? Or maybe just add the overtime receiving option to the decision-making at the initial coin toss? You know, um... My belief on tie games, overtime rules, instant replay as an officiating tool. Uh, I'm very much an old man with all of my <laughs> opinions on those things. And so I doubt that what I think would be popular uh, with just about anyone these days. But this is, you know, Corey, you asked. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> uh, I personally see nothing wrong with regular season games ending in a tie. Um, because, you know... When the Steelers tied Detroit, which is the most recent example of right. these fans were just, oh, my God, it was like the, sky was the world was ending. Yeah, the, you know, the, the, the game ended in a tie. It counted as well, four okay. losses in fans' minds. <laughs> okay, but here, here's the other thing. That tie eliminated the Steelers from all tie-breaking uh, when, the, when they're trying to determine the playoff uh, situation at the end of the season. Now, if you look up tie-breakers, Okay, you want to get frustrated? How about your favorite team losing out on a playoff spot because of such things as, and I'm going to read these as they actually are written in the rule book. Strength of victory in all games. Strength of schedule in all games. Best combined ranking among conference teams and points scored and points allowed in all games. I couldn't even follow that last Best one. What combined, was that? Right. Best combined ranking among all teams in points scored and points allowed in all games. <laughs> Best net points in common games, uh, etc. And, and though this has never happened, <laughs> this I find extremely ironic. At the end of all these tiebreakers, if through like nine or ten versions of this garbage that I just read, it's still equal. <laughs> You know what's last? I don't. Coin toss. Yes. Coin toss. <laughs> it always <laughs> okay. comes back to the coin. <laughs> always comes back to the coin. So um, that's that's why, you know, having some ties would eliminate a lot of this stuff. Uh, so that's what I think. Um, and as far as overtime, uh, play defense. 
You know, you always hear defense wins championships. <laughs> right. Okay, so if your team, your favorite team, cannot stop the opponent from taking a kickoff at its own 25-yard line and driving right down the field to score a touchdown, then your team deserves to lose. <laughs> you know, um, you know, maybe then if you know that you can't stop the other team, don't let the game go into overtime. Don't kick the extra point um, right. to tie the game late in the fourth quarter. Go for two. Like Harbaugh did you last know? year. It or backfired like, on him. Uh, or like Mike Tomlin did um, in San Diego in 2015. Right. Uh, instead of kicking a field goal, short field goal with the ball at the one, he put Le'Veon Bell in the Wildcat. The Mike Vick game. The Mike Vick game. So, um, you know, there, there just always seems to be whining um, by the losers. You know, whatever it is, it's unfair. Uh, and I'm tired of that. So, um and then the whining, and then the league changes the rules to placate the whiners. Um, you know, as I said, let the ties in the regular season. I would imagine a lot of the tiebreaker situations come uh, come the end of the regular season, determining playoff teams would go away. And then play defense in, in overtime in the playoffs, or you deserve to lose. That's it. Yeah, I mean – Speaking to your point of placating the whiners, we heard nonstop about the Bills not having a chance against the Chiefs. The Bills deserve to get the ball back and have a chance to tie the game in overtime. Literally just fast forward one week, the Bengals got the stop against the Chiefs in overtime, played defense, won the game, and went to the Super Bowl. Yet no one seems to talk about that. It's always, oh, the Bills didn't get a fair shake. It is frustrating. And, you know, and, and the examples of changing the rules because of the whiners goes beyond just overtime remember the year when pass interference uh, became sean a reviewable thing uh, because uh the great sean payton didn't know how to manage the last two minutes of that quarter uh, and there would have been no uh pass necessary um for there to be interference uh and they changed the rules and how did that one work out that year remember that oh it god lasted, was that awful it lasted one year and they got rid of it immediately yeah. because it was so bad yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not in favor of changing a rule because of a singular complaint. I mean, a singular instance that leads to a complaint. Um, it's it's just I don't I just don't think it's good policy. Keith Weimer from Boardman, Ohio, asks: I see where Frank Gore is signing a one day deal to retire from the NFL as a member of the 49ers. Assuming he is elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame one day. Does this mean he would automatically go in as a 49er? Okay, this is one of the differences, Keith, between the Pro Football Hall of Fame and what you're thinking of, which is the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Okay, in Cooperstown, the plaque shows, uh, has an image, you know, of a nondescript player with wearing a cap. Mm -hmm. And the cap then... Um, you can choose whatever logo you want on the cap if you played at multiple teams, and then you go into the Hall of Fame as a member of that team. In Canton, as we know, there's busts of the uh, inductees, and the, the busts have no team affiliation on them anywhere. And the only um, the distinction for the uh, inductees the Pro Football Hall of Fame is whether you go in as a player, a coach, or a contributor. So it doesn't matter where Frank Gore 
uh, retires as a member of, you know, the ceremonial uh, rigmarole that some players choose to go through uh, to sign these one-day contracts to retire as a member of a certain team uh, in terms of their Hall of Fame um, designation. Because if you go on the Hall of Fame's website, there is a uh, an area where they list all of the players in the Hall of Fame and they list them um, with respect to what they call primary contributors mm. to a specific franchise, okay? So, um, you know, you can look that up. But that's and, not on the bus and, and when you go into Canada. That's not on the bus, no. it's it has not. Nor is it a part of the actual induction ceremony unless the individual chooses, right. you know, to make it known. Um, in terms of the league and the Hall of Fame, uh, it really doesn't. It's not a consideration. Or unless you're a Steeler, and in that case, Steelers Nation will make it known because the whole crowd will be waving <laughs> terrible towels the entire time you're giving your speech. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, Kevin Green is an is an example of that. I mean, he only played three of his close to twenty years. I'm, I can't remember off the top of my head how long his distinguished career was with the Steelers. But Kevin Green chose to um, through his you know uh, speech and then subsequent to that his induction speech and then subsequent of that to um, associate himself or associate the highlight of his career uh, with his time with the Steelers and so as I said you know if an individual is interested in doing things that way he is certainly uh, within his rights to do so Rasmus Peterson from Vanlos Denmark Will there be a kicking competition this summer during training camp, or will Chris Boswell and Presley Harvin III assume those tasks again? Um, there is no competition for Boswell. I mean, even if there's yeah. some someone else there, uh, it, it's just to, you know, whenever Chris Boswell doesn't feel like, you know, his leg is up to whatever drill is, you know, going on or whatever, then they put in the other guy. It's It's similar to you know, a fourth arm at training camp or mm-hmm. for quarterbacks. Um, so, you know, Boswell is, he's a lock. Um, Presley Harvin the third is an interesting case. Uh, I would have assumed if the Steelers were more interested in a legitimate head-to-head competition, they would have kept Corliss Waitman, who filled in it, uh, for a couple of games at the end of last regular season when Presley Harvin the third's father died. But um, they let him. They let him go, Waitman. I mean, so I really think the Steelers wanted to work out with Harvin. I think Harvin did a lot to secure his spot on the team with uh, the holding he did yeah. uh, in some difficult situations in some big games. And I know fans like to roll their eyes at that. And what's the big deal about that? Well, Mike Just Tomlin get, doesn't you know, like some, to roll his eyes at that. I can tell you that he doesn't. He does not, and neither does Boswell. And so when it's raining and windy in Baltimore in overtime and you need uh, a field goal to win the game to get into the playoffs, uh, you don't want some slappy bobbling the hold as uh, Tony Romo did one time for the (laughs) Cowboys in a playoff game. So uh, that's a significant part of that job. Uh, Harvin performs it well. And I think the Steelers really want to work with him on the punting aspect. And so there is going to be a punter there. I'm sure there will be some sort of um, competition, but uh, 
I think if the Steelers really wanted to put the heat on Harvin for his job, they would have kept waiting. Catherine Conley from Arlington, Virginia. Do you have any insight into why there are so many short-term free agent contracts this year? It seems like two years is the norm. Um, you know, I, I have to admit, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it until Catherine submitted this question, and then I started thinking about it. And um, it makes sense to me now on a lot of on a lot of different levels. Um, you know, two years is a decent length of time. Um, for both the team and the player in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's good. It's short enough uh, that neither side is married to the other for an uncomfortable length of time. Um, you know, if the scheme fit for the team, for example, if the statistical return of the scheme fit in the first year of the deal isn't what the team hoped for, then it's not an onerous situation where um, the team is saddled either saddled with the player or a big dead cap hit if they try dead money cap hit if they try to move the guy. It's good for the player because if he comes in, say he signed a prove it deal, then if he proves it the first year, then it puts a little bit of heat on the team either to up the up the uh, compensation, or it gets the guy on the free agent market again relatively quickly, where you know he's not uh, considerably older. And his market value would be pretty close, you know, probably to what it was when he signed uh, the original two-year deal. Um, Two-year contracts don't stress the salary cap and make it easier and more palatable for the team to guarantee either the whole thing or a good portion of it, which players like. And, um, you know, again, on the cap uh, for the team, is it's not a big cap hit if they if you at some point want to cut the cord, um, you know you can do it relatively easily. So uh, you know it's kind of like, uh, and I don't want to uh, minimize this or, uh, but you know, a lot of times, and Chuck Noll uh, was a guy who said this: you really don't get to know a player until you live with them for a while. Right. And so you know. Um, that's that's a situation where you get to live with someone um, and find out whether it, it's going to work from both sides before you get, you get locked into a long-term relationship right off the bat. And our final submission today comes from Paul Bruno in Sherman, Connecticut. I've been following the Steelers since the 1970s when I was in elementary school, and one of their greatest strengths in my lifetime has been the run of only three head coaches, all with long, successful tenures. And yes, the defense over the past five decades has been part of the personality of the team, but I don't think any other team has had a tradition at center that matches the Steelers. Are you aware of any groups that can compare? Well, um, you know, I don't know a lot of uh, a lot about the history of a lot of the other franchises, but um, maybe the group that compares most with the Steelers' history of centers uh, is the Steelers' history at linebacker, and uh, let me take you a little back through the uh, history books and try and uh, explain my point. Um, The Steelers have had six centers that have been voted first-team All-Pro at least one time in their history. Now, you know, again, first-team All-Pro, they name, you know, 11 offensive players. So there's one center. So if you're the first-team All-Pro center, that, by definition, makes you the best center in the league. Right. 
Um, okay, so going back now, the Steelers have had six of them. Their names are Mike Bazrak, and I mean, we're going back now to the 30s. Mike Bazrak, Bill Walsh, not the one everybody thinks of, but this was the guy's name. Mike Webster, everybody's heard of. Dermani Dawson, Jeff Hardings, and Marquise Pouncey. Um, let me just point out that that list doesn't even include Ray Mansfield. Um, now, this is a guy who was never voted to a Pro Bowl or an All-Pro team, but he played in 182 consecutive games for the Steelers, talk about an Ironman, and was a starter on two Super Bowl championship teams. This guy also survived the purge from, you know, the pre-Chuck Noll era to the post-Chuck Noll era, so he had to be showing something uh, that Noll liked when Noll was, you know, purging that locker room of the guys he didn't think were good enough. Um, that's also enough forget when we're talking about the centers, Webster and Dawson, or in a Pro Football Hall of Fame. Okay, that's centers. Now let's go to linebackers. Um, starting with the 1951 Pro Bowl, there have been 71 of those games, and the Steelers have had at least one linebacker voted to play in 53 of them. <laughs> 53 of 71 is 74.6%. Now, you stick them with the linebackers. Again, going back to the 30s, there have been 85 first-team All-Pro teams compiled. And the Steelers have had at least one linebacker voted first team all pro 31 times. So 31 out of 85 is 36.5%. It's incredible you're doing that math in your head right now. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I can't, um, it's like the movie 21 uh, in here. You're counting cards. I'm Rain Man. Seriously, <laughs> I am Rain Man. <laughs> just don't, you just want to spill a box of matchsticks. On the ground, I can look at it and tell you how many. <laughs> um, and just finally, Jack Ham and Jack Lambert, as everyone knows, were voted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in their first years of eligibility. So, yes, the Steelers uh, um, have a proud history, and um, centers and linebackers—they're um, up there uh, in terms of stacking up. I think against any other team in the league. But like I said, uh, I may have been able to do that arithmetic quick in my head, but <laughs> I, I can't do the history of the entire NFL. Well, that's all she wrote for us today on this edition of Asked and Answered. Always appreciate you guys sending in your questions. If you have a fresh question for Labs, get it in now. Hopefully you'll hear it on next week's edition. Until then, I'm Tom Offerman. He's Bob Labriola, and we'll talk to you next time on Asked and Answered.